All right. After a nice free game at Tiki Taco, <laughs> here we are. Hello. For all of these non-Kansas hey. City natives saying, "What the heck's Tiki Taco?" It's only like the most probably could assume it's the most classic taco place of all time. The most classic. <laughs> They've got a great bartender. They do have we a great bartender. We had a great time with our bartender, who met his old teacher, who <laughs> got a drink bar. from him, which is very exciting. Um, yeah, but we are back after over a month, I believe, since our last episode, uh, which I feel like it was kind of needed for this book. There was a lot going on for 100 Years of Solitude, but uh, we'll get to that in just a little bit. Just to get back up to speed, uh, we're going to go around the circle and talk about some uh, media we've consumed <laughs> since the last episode. And since this is Danny's episode, we'll go ahead and uh, start with her. I'm still listening to My Favorite Murder. I've said that <laughs> Boom. every time. Um, but <laughs> I every episode. I also um, recently re-downloaded 99% Invisible with Roman Mars. Oh, man, I love that. Have you guys heard of that podcast? Mm-mm. I've heard of it, but I've never I haven't even heard of it. it. I really like it. It's, it's like a design podcast um, where they just talk about, like, <clears throat> I don't even, just all aspects of the very specific like aspects of the world and like the um like one of the episodes was about why park benches uh and like public spaces are designed like kind of uncomfortably so that like Mm. homeless people don't typically like try to post up there yeah that kind of thing so it's design but it's just like design and architecture and um like human interests like all rolled into one and I listened to it pretty religiously um, when I was in grad school, and then I kind of just fell off the wagon. But um, I recently re-downloaded it, and they had a really great episode about um, how <laughs> um, it was like a crossover almost with another podcast called Reply All, which I also love. And um, they did an, an episode about how 99% Invisible wouldn't play on, like, that you, like, plug your phone in into the into your car, and it, like, wouldn't play on this one person's, like, very specific like model of his car and in his radio and so they like did a lot of, like like a lot of digging and tried to figure out like why it would why that particular 99 percent visible is the only podcast that wouldn't play hmm. so they did you know that kind of thing where they just like they investigate very um specific i don't know it, they're not issues or problems mysteries they're just like, yeah i don't know they're just like why are things niche, designed the way that they are yeah, niche yeah. mysteries and i also really like it because it's digestible um they're like 20 minutes uh, 25 minutes and so like they're <clears throat> short topics or small topics but um you know they're i like to listen to a few just like on my way to work um so i've been listening to that um also watched abducted in plain sight yes we talked about that our way back yeah. from tiki taco um, oh what an infuriating documentary infuriating documentary just um, baffling. The thing that we baffling is good. We hadn't said to you is Jamie and I when we were talking to each other after watching it last weekend, we were just like, I cannot believe that this family was okay getting interviewed. Like all of them just were like, Yeah, let's tell like, our story. Yeah. Well they I mean like it the, made a little more sense to me because they were used to media because she had a book. Right. Yeah. But, but still. like some of their decisions of just casually being like, yeah. Well, and the information we- that they would have that they agreed to have to share. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, like just the at one point, the dad, after sharing all of these things, made a comment of like, 
you know, I we weren't perfect parents. <laughs> And we made a lot of bad choices, but I think we made some good choices too. And I was like, "Did you?" They're <laughs> like, don't... "How can you say that yeah, after it... all of the things that you just recounted?" Like, should we summarize it real fast? Uh, just, just the girl got kidnapped twice. She gets kidnapped by her by, like, like neighbor, a family yeah. friend multiple times and the parents just like keep letting it happen. And also like it's a study in like the screwed up like just justice system at the time especially like in the 70s like yeah they did you know they decided not to press charges but there were so many times when he had kidnapped their daughter and was like calling them on the phone while her while their daughter was kidnapped and she was like other she was like elsewhere had run away he knew where she was and he would like call her mom and be like hey marianne what's up yeah, yeah and, and she like just kept like, like yeah, oh you know i'm not great how bob you, you, <laughs> not doing great and they're just Have you seen our daughter? So many no, layers. I don't think so. Oh, I'm feeling pretty upset about it. Just so many layers. Like the mom and him had an affair. He and the dad had an affair. Yeah. Anyway. What a crazy time. So yeah. I, we, we all we figured all out earlier that. that we watched that. Yeah. So that's, that's what I've been doing. Oh, I watched Amy Schumer's um, comedy special. And I have not. I mellowed on her like a few, you know, when she had her leather special. I was not that impressed. And she also is a little bit canceled. But I watched her... <laughs> I watched her most recent Netflix special, and I, it was pretty funny. Nice. So I'll give it like a seven out of six point five out of ten. Ooh, ten mm. point scale. Six point five out of ten. A little drop. Yeah, <laughs> a little I, don't, drop. I don't know that I'm interested in watching it. Like, I'm, Amy, she's fine. She's fine. It was f- much funnier than the leather special. I didn't watch and that one. anything else that she's done, honestly. <laughs> so I thought it was funny. That's all. Um, for me, one of the things that I really enjoyed uh recently is i was getting into um some african influenced music and there was a thread on indie heads subreddit and people were all like oh everybody that talks about african influenced music always talks about paul simon and like they're actual african artists that are like african pop or you know a lot of the originators a lot of these styles that are getting uh essentially copied and so i dove into a guy that i had learned about in my world music class in college Felakuti, uh, and his stuff is not only funky as hell and just incredible music uh, i started researching uh, a lot into him and watched some documentaries on youtube and like a lot of people I feel like should know his stuff a lot more because to me he seemed like he was what Bob Marley was to Jamaica, Filakuti was to Nigeria, and like his protest music was so powerful that it like actually pissed off the Nigerian government. I told Jamie about one of his albums and it got talked about in one of the documentaries. It's called Zombie and it was talking about the Nigerian army and people were like using this song to make fun of the army and they'd be like repeating stuff from it. And it's just like 12 minute long, like funky jam. And the army went to his house and like destroyed everything, beat him up threw his mom out a window and she died. And then he like continued to make music after that and continued to protest, tried to run for president of Nigeria and the government actively tried to shut it down being like, we can't have more parties 
Like you can't create your own party and run for president, even though he was popular enough to do it. Uh, so it's super fascinating. And if you love like danceable music with a good message, Fela Kuti is the bomb. So I think that was a, a dope thing that I was getting into since the last episode. Um, lots of things. Um, I don't know. Let's see. Briefly, I did. I did go down a rabbit hole of listening to Billie Eilish because I work with teenagers and that's all they're talking about. Oh, I've I've been doing that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and she fascinates me because she's seventeen years old and is just absolutely insane, but like in a good way. So I I've been listening to Billie Eilish. Um, let's see what else. Somehow neither of you mentioned Game of Thrones. I, yeah, I mean, it, it came on. We were letting you Yeah, you got it. Do you it. got it. Uh, so as we record this, the first episode of season eight of Game of Thrones uh, came out last Sunday. Um, and so and there's only five left, which is we, insane. We there's all have watched left. it. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of feelings. Um, that's what I'll say about that. <laughs> I have a lot of feelings. We have a lot of feelings about Bran. About Bran. I also, though, just like for the record, I keep seeing things on Twitter about Sansa. And so many people hate Sansa. And you know what? They hate her? So many people. That was only justifiable in early seasons. Yeah. Sansa had flaws, but she was also young and like she obviously has, right. she, was going she through has a lot. the best character arc. She has a great character arc in the show. <clears throat> I don't really understand that, but I don't know what the exact but problems I also, were. Brian, you could um, confirm or deny this for me because I was reading a Twitter hmm. thread about Sansa um, that I think was started by Hank Green because Hank Green's he he tweeted that he posted a video on his like side channel about Game of Thrones, and before he even realized what oh, he was yeah. doing, he deleted a comment from somebody saying that Sansa is a useless character. <laughs> he was just no. like, no, not that. <laughs> um, but then I was reading all the comments on it, and somebody talked about how in the books, she's not the one that gets married to Ramsay; it's her friend. Yeah. And so she's just like chilling at the veil when all this shit is happening. Oh. And it hasn't, head. but it hasn't developed that much either. So, like, okay. maybe the plans would be that she's eventually going to, because, like, spoilers again to everybody, just fast forward like three minutes or so. Like, Jon <laughs> Snow hasn't even died yet yeah. in the books. Oh, yeah. Like, there's still so much that hasn't happened that, like, yeah. I don't know since George R. R. Martin has been a consultant on the show if he was like, that's where we're going to go with it because there's a lot of discrepancies, but we still don't know what the end goal is going to be. But yeah, in the book, she yeah, because somebody was like defending the idea that Sansa sucks, and he was like, "Well, if you read the book, like she literally has no character arc; like she's just shit, just sitting at the veil and oh yeah, not hanging out with whatever." But she'd still have even with her influence at the veil, like that is hugely yeah. important or Jon Snow well, would die but, but a see, second time. Like that's still, the whole freaking point. I don't know the books. Yeah. So I didn't know. I haven't read the books. I have well, on our booktube podcast. I, have, I haven't read the books for Game wow. of Thrones. I have to find fine. a meme <laughs> that I saw on I don't know. You guys probably saw it. It was on Twitter and it was just like it was a quoted tweet of like another tweet and it was like Sansa Stark like 
all you know how about all these you know the greatest army in the world and dragons also and then the quoted tweet just said the budget is no yeah I saw that. <laughs> and the no is capitalized which makes it funnier i don't nice. know just the budget is no i saw yeah. that i well, think she's great she's one of my I faves love Sansa so much um yeah that's about it i don't know yeah. I've done other things, but Brian's telling me that I my time is up. So. It's been a while, but we also have a book here where we're getting into. We also didn't introduce oh, yeah. ourselves or talk about our drinks. Yeah, I know. Brian, we just kind of hopped into it. Brian doesn't know how to run this podcast. The pregame, guys. The pregame changed really, things. The pregame tacos really did it. Um, I'm Danny. I'm drinking a Michelob Ultra, and I'm like ashamed how, about it. Like how it was the pregame tacos are are what caused this. Issue. I would like to clarify though oh. that um, that Michelob Ultra has been sitting in our fridge for over a year. I'm doing them Danny's a favor. Doing us a favor. One of our friends left it here, and we don't want to drink it. So yeah. And you. so instead, uh, I'm Brian, and I'm drinking one of the uh, Guinness from that six-pack from our last episode. <laughs> oh, my God. It was a month ago. Yeah. Because yeah. of, uh, yeah, St. Patty's. Um, I am, I'm Jamie. Hi. I'm drinking a Tank 7 Boulevard Brewing Company. But also, I would like to also clarify that prior to these beers, Danny and I both had a, a rum drink called The Orgasm. <laughs> Um, <laughs> four shots of rum. Yeah, with like a lot, just a lot of rum in it. So it tasted like a beachy smoothie. Yeah, it was like coconut smoothie. and raspberry and other things. It was great. So yeah, well, that's uh, that's the beginning. Thanks for getting to know us again since it's been again over a month. Um, yeah, we're gonna hop into this. Danny's been. Uh, going ham on these notes over here for the second part of 100 years of solitude i gotta take a lot of notes i've had to take lots of notes on this whole book um i mean this has been the most homeworky uh sec section of this podcast for me um which has been good it's been like you know ap pre-ap english it feels like i'm a freshman in high school again well after reading into it it just you could feel the significance of it because obviously there's like the reputation precedes it but like there's just so much about this book that makes it feel i like i suppose elevated over you know other books that you may read yeah so um we left off around page 203 at least in our um editions of this book um just about halfway through and um, in the second half, I'm just going to go through the list of things that I wrote down as a summary um, of the second half because so many things happen and so many people die. I think I dog-eared the pages of whenever people die and I was just dog-earing left and right for a little while. Just Yes. <laughs> they would happen so suddenly. Yeah, they, just there so was many, such a random death. The first half is so much character development about so many characters and then all of a sudden they just all kind of... Not all like, at once, but like you just anymore. don't. Yeah, and then and then it's like, oh, and Ursula was a billion years old, and you know, or well, we go from deaths like, that are like Becca buried herself alive. Yeah, yeah. well, we go from deaths Amaranto that are like was really her own shroud. like ceremonial at the end of chapters, and right. then all of a sudden we get deaths where it's just like in the middle. It's like, oh yeah, P.S. I thought somebody else went. I thought that was interesting that they did that. It almost was like it was, it was almost like. We, you know, we divided it in half a little bit arbitrarily, but it felt very much like the first half was like yeah. ceremonious deaths, like at the ends of chapters, and then in in this it was just like death after death, and some of them were like like um, Colonel Aureliano Buendia dies very 
like he just goes he like he just kind of fades into nothingness right mm-hmm. he just die, he just kind of like falls asleep and dies so that's one of the things that happens in the second half. yeah yeah we'll, so, we'll just do like this brief summary i suppose whatever you can do yeah so um so it starts out with um <laughs> this was a, i liked this ursula going blind um and it talks about how she's she's very blind but she just knows um she's so old and so experienced with like the town and her family that she knows what's going on at all times because she just knows everybody's routines um so she she finds she finds things that are lost better than anybody else despite mm-hmm. uh you know being the only person in the city you know or like you know she's very old and very blind um Aureliano Segundo is still having an affair with Patrick uh is it Cotes or Cortez I can't remember I think it's Cotes uh I think it's Cotes and I kept thinking of Coates Coates <laughs> but obviously it's not that but Patrick I'm just saying Coates. yeah um so, <laughs> <Patrick Coates. laughs> so Aureliano Segundo and Patrick Cotes are having an affair whilst he is still married to like the cold and aggressively religious Fernanda Oh my god! Um, who is just a lot who, as, a, as a presence in this back She's just kind half. of like a, a religious slave driver, and like takes over the house and just makes it very much. Um, she just is—I don't know. She's just a very cold character the whole time, the whole rest of the book. Um, uh, one of the biggest events that happens in the second in the second half is um, is Jose Ar- uh, Jose Arcadio Secundo. He um, is organizing um, a group of people for a um, for a strike, a workers' strike, mm-hmm. and um, it's basically a uh, the government agrees to meet with them, and it's basically a setup. Um, they station you know people um, with guns all around and uh, end up basically massacring thousands of men, women, and children. And Jose Arcadio Secundo, Secundo wakes up on a train, um, you know, taking all of these these corpses out of the city. Um, and um, he kind of, he realizes what's happened uh, and makes his way back to Macondo. And, um, you know, to his horror, nobody remembers what happened. Um, and then at that point, there's like a symbolic rain. I don't remember. I don't remember if it starts then or if it's already been happening. Um, but there's I a. I think it starts after the massacre. Yeah, because. Well, uh, I mean, like when he gets, does it when he gets back to Macondo? Yeah. Mm. And then it just there's this, this very symbolic rain that just like washes all evidence of the massacre. Um, it lasts forever, like a like you know four five years. years or something. Yeah, five, four or five. Yeah. Washes all evidence of the massacre. Um, and then you know everybody's minds have been washed of what happened and so there are times in the in the second half of the book that he brings it up and other people bring it up and it's like there are two sides you know there's the people who remember it happening or you know heard about it happening and believe that it happened and then the people um that you know that think that it's a hoax basically um and that's based off of a real event yes which we'll talk about i'm sure um there's a lot of other things that happened but that's the most important part i would say yeah the and then the, the eventual uh the discovery dim- of melchide's text again yeah basically or the, the translation of it which is a prediction of the family dissolving in macondo being wiped away so yeah disappearing um it all gets built up at the beginning and gets swept away at the end so yeah that's yeah that's the that's the book we're done the- <laughs> asmr baby <laughs> I, can I ask a question before I forget it? Yes. Okay. 
Let me see if I remember it now. I thought of it That's okay. while you were talking. Okay, no, right at the beginning of your summary, you talked about how we we divided the book kind of arbitrarily between, uh, like, first half and second half, um, but it felt different. Mm-hmm. Like, there was a transition there, um, specifically talking about death. And I know that in the first half, I don't remember that we really mentioned this. I think we did briefly. But in the first half of the, the novel, there's, like, this idea that Makondo is really perfect and lovely and no like literally no one dies until outsiders come in Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if you guys noticed I don't know that I did I would need to think back to it but is there is there like an inciting incident like that that leads to a bunch of people dying or like is there a change in the first half you mean like when when we get into the second half when it seems like everybody's just dying without cause is there a, a noticeable change that's before a, that that's a good question let me does I, that make sense me, yes um, um i'm trying to remember who died first though yeah I because don't, so many people did yeah i don't know well there's aureliano triste i forgot about him <laughs> i mean there's i literally i, mean, I have there's like forgotten about dozens of Arellanos. Let me just see if I can quickly find like one of my dog ears of when people died. But I mean, it wasn't uh, Jose Arcadio Buendia, was it? I don't think so. I don't remember. I think that we would have. I think we would remember if there was like an inciting incident that started like all the deaths of people. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I didn't. The first time I read it, I didn't notice that, like, like oh, the town was perfect until outsiders came in. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know that I, like, acknowledged that. And so I just, I just a thought, a question to ponder. I mean, I think that that's, there's something that's part of else. it. Like, the, like, capitalism if it's just, brought... like, running off of that. When does the train come in? Yeah, I was thinking about the train and capitalism. It's, it's yeah. right about when we stopped. Yeah. Or I think it was right after because I remember we started learning about Mr. Brown and he came in to have mm-hmm. a banana and then was like, hey, this is the spot, y'all. This is the spot. <laughs> That's a direct quote if yeah. you look at page two, um, 243. Don't go there. Um, but I think that, that was definitely an acceleration, though. Yeah. Like as much as, um, you know, there may have been deaths earlier, I think that... You know, that was an acceleration, obviously, because that was such a monumental change for the town. Yeah. Um, and previous to that, like, there were outsiders um, with the gypsies and whatnot, but but everything was still young and fresh, and uh, there hadn't been a whole lot of... Um, what What is the word I'm trying to think of? Just a buildup of continuous, like, sin and wrongdoing with the family. Because I think that yeah. that was, like something that I was starting to realize about, especially as we got to the end of the novel, um, that like, I think misfortunes continued because the family continued to do things that were like, quote unquote wrong, like mm-hmm. continuing to interbreed with their own mm-hmm. family, because we literally get to the end of the family line. And this whole time has been a warning from Ursula talking about, hey, you know, I'm worried about marrying uh, Jose Arcadio Buendia because, 
rumor has it, a child will be born with a pigtail. <laughs> and that's how the family ends, with the baby with a pigtail. And they then, talk about it and talk about it for so long. She freaks out about it for the whole book, and then finally that's how it like ends. Yeah, and, yeah, and they all have ends. such... And, and as the family line grows, because you think of like... You know, at the beginning, we're we're learning about the first three children getting born and the issues that stem from that. Because even from the earliest generation with Jose Arcadio at the very beginning, uh, you know, it, it continues to build from there because there are more of the family there to continue their sins and to kind of like bring more misfortune as time goes on. So I don't know if there was an inciting fact, except for the fact that more people had more time to do more yeah, things. and that's, I mean, that's kind of what Melchite's, like, prophecy says, mm-hmm. is that they're just going to keep fucking themselves over. Um, <laughs> like, and, it's just going to be a cycle. Yeah, and then once they learn about it, they can't do anything about it. Yeah. Pretty much. It's not very hopeful. <laughs> no, it's not. I wouldn't call it a hopeful it's novel. It's not hopeful. I would not call it a hopeful novel. Um. <clears throat> okay, I just have a few questions. Um, that I thought were interesting. So one of them just has to do with the way that religion is presented in the book because there are so many, there are like a few characters, a few like priests. Um, there's Fernanda who is like kind of like laying down the law, like religious woman. Um, and then there's also, um, <laughs> I was, I wondered if you guys, uh, had any thoughts about this. This essay question that I looked, that I was like looking at, um, mentions um, to pay close attention to Aureliano, uh, the illegitimate son of Meme and Mauricio Bab- Babiliona. Babilonia. Um, she's that Meme is the one who went and met the guy, and they were like having an affair, and um, I think Fernanda found out. Somebody found out and like had him shot. Yeah, she found Fernanda found out. And yeah. Maymay had the baby and sent it back to Fernanda, and she raised it and named it Aureliano for some reason. <laughs> <clears throat> um, but I wondered why. I mean, I guess I wondered why that question would have said pay close attention to that Aureliano um, in the context of religion. I guess maybe because it's an illeg- illegitimate child, but there were a lot of those <laughs> yeah. throughout the novel. Um, yeah, that's, I don't know. I, I don't know strange. if you had any thoughts. The only parallel I could see is just like in an opposite way of like the anti Moses because like it's it's a child that was sent along back mm-hmm. to a family, but instead of bringing like in, instead of saving his people, he is indirectly ending his line because yeah. I, that seems very harsh to put on his shoulders, obviously, but. You know, he did have another relationship with his aunt, Amaranta, to birth the last child. And the prophecy essentially, like, says or alludes to the fact that he's the one that ends the line by yeah. by reading the prophecy itself. So it seems to be like an anti-Moses Wait, to me. so Aureliano's the one who had the baby who died, right? The yes. baby at the end who mm-hmm. dies. <clears throat> So, hmm. Hmm. yeah, he is. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I. So that's why I find it weird that if if there was an essay question regarding that, it seems to be unless there's a story that I'm unaware of. Like I see the parallels as far as like the baby is is brought back. 
Well, we, they and, talk about that, though. They talk about Aureliano in the context of, they don't say Moses, but they say something about, like, um, his origin. Like, I think they called his origin story, they said his origin story was being found in a basket. Yeah, mm. it was. That's, like, what they talk about. So, like, th- there's a Moses parallel there. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying is it that just seems like, like the, the opposite. opposite Moses. It's the opposite. The anti-Moses. The anti-Moses, yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. That's really interesting. Um, and, like... I, I, I don't know that any of the religious parallels as far as, like, any of the good aspects are really even present to me. Yeah. Because it seems like there are a lot of instances where the family tries to right some wrong within the line by either sending their children off to various religious institutions to no avail. Uh, even like Maymay went to. She was supposed to be a nun. a nun. Yeah. And and like even instances in the town where like churches were built up, or there was the one uh, particular church with um, who was that Italian guy? Fern. <laughs> Fernando is that his uh, name? Crespi. Crespi? Something oh, Crespi. I thought that was Piet- his first name. Pietro? Pietro. P- yeah, Pietro, Pietro Crespi. And, like, even in those instances, like, that his relationship with the family was fraught and he was, like, a religious-based guy. It just never seemed like any of those instances where they were trying to intertwine themselves with religious institutions even led to any salvation at all. Um, which I found interesting because, you know, we're talking about how, uh, you know, there, there's not a lot of hope in the book. Like, it doesn't seem like anybody is saved unless we count uh, Remedios the beauty had she happened to ascend into She's heaven. She's the one who floated up to Or whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever happened, whatever happened to her. Just, just so, yeah, no yeah I don't know. I guess it's just I, I, I read a I was reading a bit about um, just I don't know, just thoughts on religion related to this book and um and i feel like in a lot of books like this authors are pretty not overt but like um it's pretty obvious you know you can tell the author's feelings on religion Mm -hmm. and i feel like in this case you can very obviously tell his feelings on like like fraught politics and like the politics of the country but um i feel like the way he feels about religion is kind of a toss-up like yeah. he's not disparaging it mm-hmm. but he's also not praising it by any means no because it's not like he's, he's kind of making fun of it but like not but then also like half of the book most of the book is like oh and then there was a ghost and then they talked to so-and-so so it's not like it has any like there's no question about like you know oh it doesn't make any sense it's not realistic or whatever like there's no question about you know religion being unrealistic um, yeah and and they want it to be used in a positive way it's never like you know people were actively disparaging religion it was still something that they were like wanting to use to you know turn the family around because i think that most of the buendias were aware that their family had some <laughs> issues going throughout time and and they tried especially in the later generations there seemed to be an even more even more of an emphasis on getting the children involved 
in these religious institutions to try to help. And I just think that the Buendias themselves were the problem and maybe not the religion in this case. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that like it looking in the context of like South American literature and South American culture. Um, and I don't know everything about it, so I'm not going to like say a ton, but nothing. I mean, I do know that like, like it's, South American culture, like religion, is important. Like mm-hmm. that's it's a, like very like right. strong religious culture, um, but also I think that that relationship is kind of fraught because I feel like a lot of a lot of South America that maybe I'm wrong. I feel like a good amount of South America is Catholic. Yeah, I would. And that's like that. from colonialism. Mm-hmm. Like that's not. And so, like, I feel like the relationship is fraught because they do feel, like, close to God or, like, feel like religion is valid and that so many people trust that. But also it was brought in by people that they don't trust. Mm -hmm. That actually is an interesting point because of the fact that, you know, from our own readings, obviously, it's easy to see. But also when looking at any analyzation of the book, like, a huge part of the the themes of the book is about colonialism and how that affects the native cultures, Mm -hmm. especially, you know, in a microcosm here in Macondo. But that is interesting to see that relationship with religion in this case, because of its origins in the region. And especially like we're dealing with in Macondo in this section, like not classic colonialism. Like it's not like, like Spain took over and mm-hmm. is running. Like it's uh, a word that I relearned today: neo-colonialism. Mm-hmm. That's like capitalism, colonialism. Like it's like businesses coming in and ta- essentially yeah. running the town. Mm-hmm. So that like has less to do with religion, which I also feel like is why he focuses on it less. Maybe because he saw well that that happens in the second half of. I mean, it's definitely less focused on in the second half of the book. Yeah, when and- capitalism kind of takes. Because I feel like he sees more of an effect from those people, mm-hmm. like from capitalist measures rather than religious measures um, with the fruit company and everything. I don't know. Also, I would like to just say that I opened <laughs> up the book to a random page while we were talking about this. And the first quote I saw was from Colonel Orleano Buendia, I think. Yeah. He said, that's all we need, he muttered. A pope. <laughs> <laughs> well, then there's somebody, one of the older women in the family is, and that is where we'll conclude. <laughs> one of the older women. We solved the book. Amaranta or Ursula or something, and she's obsessed with Jose Arcadio, when, uh, Jose Arcadio Secundo, I think, becoming pope, right? Well, Jose Arcadio goes there are to a the couple seminary. That's what's happening right here. Yeah. So that's, okay. There are a couple, so there are a couple family members that they're, uh, the older members of the generation are trying to actively move them toward being a pope, notably Ursula mm-hmm. yeah. in a lot of cases. Um, but as far as that, the, the uh, focus on capitalism and its effect, the interesting part of that in, you know, thinking about the arc of the story and the arc of the book and the fact that we have noticed some shift in the middle because of how we stopped at where we did, it does seem like there is 
maybe not a narrative climax, but a, a climax of some sort. <laughs> Wilford agrees. Um, a climax of some sort within the actual building of the town because everything is expanding with the railroad, with the actual company, with all of these people coming into the town that you know we're building and building and building and when we're in the middle and the massacre happens that's when the rains start and that is a huge precursor to a lot of the rest of the degradation of the town and the misery of the town and that's all brought on it presumably the rain is brought on from this terrible deed from the company and yeah. so that that's like a also huge... like flooding like that is such a biblical image. Yeah, yeah. Like, cleansing everything. Yeah. And... But it shows the importance of you know where the focuses are because though you know we're mentioning a lot about the religious imagery, like it, it is important to kind of see that that was part of the climax of the town itself. Again, maybe not the narrative climax, but the climax of the town itself and its decline after their terrible act. Mm-hmm. That brings me nicely into my next question. Oh! <laughs> Segway. That was an unplanned <laughs> ASMR baby. Um, this, so I read this um, like a few, I don't even, a few weeks ago when I first started the second half of the book. Um, and I was confused about it. So it talks about analyzing the banana massacre scene um, and then you know, it asks how, like, how do we know that the banana massacre scene is the climactic scene of the book? And I underlined that part because I was kind of like, well, I don't, we don't, I don't think we do know. Like, I mean, I think that it is maybe, I think you could make arguments for a lot of places being the, I mean, I don't know if there's like a definitive climax in this situation i think there's maybe a few but i think it definitely like delineates the beginning of the end like and so i think maybe that's what makes it the climax but i just thought that was interesting because um i had to do a little more digging to like because i mean the 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 massacre itself is only like two pages long like it doesn't last very long it's not it's it's i mean there's whole pages of people like having an inner dialogue like longer than you know this massacre happening i made it more shocking to me and made me almost be like did that really happen because of how yeah. short it was like i was questioning it for a while which is a nice parallel to how everybody else reacts to it yeah in the novel because like, i i honestly that's i honestly right. didn't know like two pages later and know. i had i had to go back and read it i read it at least twice i yeah. just like needed to kind of i don't know debrief on what actually happened um, so I don't know. I mean, we can talk more about that, but I just thought that, that was interesting to the, an interesting question about like it's similar to like the question that I asked last week of um, you know who do we think the hero is? I think that you can make a lot of um, I don't know a lot of arguments for like the, the climax the climax of this book. But like also I don't know. You noted it as like the beginning of the end, which I do think that that's which valid. is the definition of a climate. I mean, that, like- that, that is like yeah, like I give my students a nice little it's a little thing like like this. So I guess that's story what. structure. So I I would call that the climax, but I do agree that it it's almost anticlimactic in how short it is. Mm-hmm. Like there's not. I guess it wasn't as obvious to yeah. me until I I kept reading, which is interesting because I feel like sometimes you get to the climax of a book and you're like 
this is it this is the yeah you're like the time and everybody edge of your seat. it lasts for pages and it's great yeah. but i feel like i had to keep reading to compare it to the rest of the book to actually understand that that's what it was well it it did stick out regardless like it wasn't something that you could pass over because like right. immediately upon reading it like it was such a horrifying thing whether it was a hallucination or not it was just the way it's described and the way it was just so mercilessly done like you know that was something that i continued to read on and it does continue to get you know referenced back to but you know i think that that kind of aids the argument but like maybe it was well done and how short it was because regardless like it's it's hard to sugarcoat you know, something as massive of like 3,000 people were wiped out in one fell swoop. Like you could say it in that few of you know, of terms and, and it would still carry an impact because of the implication of what happens. And so like I, I think that, you know, it, it's hard to say otherwise that it's not. I just think that there are a lot of like aspects later on that kind of seal the deal for the story of the family. So that's what I'm saying as far as the narrative arc for the family, but probably for the overall story of Makondo itself. That, yeah, I would argue that that probably mm-hmm. was, but it's just crazy to think of like how much of a long fall mm-hmm. there is afterward, which mm-hmm. I think is a a big part of this story. Like it, it does really hit you harder about the fall of the family because it does take so long because mm-hmm. it is such a long, like there's so many people to die. There's so many buildings to fall. And so I think it is kind of important that it does happen where it does to allow that time to uh, allocate as much time to the building of the town and the family and the fall of Mm -hmm. the town and the family. Mm -hmm. I also think that I similarly it could be considered the climax just because so much is leading up to like the idea of foreigners bringing bad things in. Yeah. Like there's like they call it like the rash of the foreigners mm-hmm. like and i think that that is the climax of that conflict throughout the novel yeah also like the banana company comes in and everything starts being more obvious like how like how detrimental it is to the natives of the land um so even outside of the family like that is the climax of that mm-hmm. plot line colonialism and neo-colonialism big word also i had like a flashback while you guys were sitting here talking about this like very vivid flashback to when i took the class that i read this for (laughs) of i i think i had to write like a a page analysis or something over the banana massacre for the class and i just had like war flashbacks to me sitting there being like it's only two pages how am i gonna like (laughs) what what, where is more information on this (laughs) like i don't know what to say yeah you know i mean right you have to like keep reading to be able to analyze it more almost um okay i have one last um question and it i want to read it word for word from this like study guide that i found because um it's that starts out in a funny way it starts, incest is usually a remote possibility for families. <laughs> usually. <laughs> I just feel like that's kind of an understatement. Um, I feel like also it was an unnecessary introduction <laughs> to, to this question about incest. 
Like, we don't need an explanation about incest and how it doesn't and happen. Its possibilities. Um, for the Buendias, it is a constant threat. Oh. <laughs> Why? I don't, I don't think that they see it as a threat. I feel like. Yeah, but that, I mean, so what is it about the Buendia family and their solitude that makes incest such a danger? This is the bias of whoever wrote this essay question coming through. But I think that's interesting because I don't necessarily, you're right, I don't think that they think it's a danger. Only one of them really thinks yeah. that it's dangerous and it doesn't happen. The rest of them are kind of just like... They're all just kind of like banging who they want to bang. <laughs> well, some of them don't know, first of all. Some of, and some of them true. feel remorse on it later. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also some of them think that they're related and then find out that they're not. Like with Rebecca, they thought that Rebecca oh, yeah. was like their sister, right? And then she marries... Well, later the later generation does. Well, Ursula is still pretty pissed about it because she's the one that's like, she's her sister, regardless of the fact that she's like, adopted. Because right. Ursula's the one that's like, hey, what the... Come Speaking on. of incest, Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> Um, nice. That's bringing the, it back. That's the commentary callback. we're looking for. Classic callback. Um, I don't know. I think that the the danger of it is, you know, first of all, a normalization. Um, it's already happened from the beginning. Uh, and and just the fact that again the family gets spread so wide that it's hard to always know. Mm-hmm. Um. And I, I think that there's a lot of presence to the the characters that, you know, it's easy to get drawn to people that have such influence the way that they do. And they had such a role in the town and they're always there. Like people come and go, it seems, but the Buendias always have a presence from beginning to end. Um, and I just think that also... I keep going back to this theory just because, you know, now I've read the end of the book and see how it all kind of sums up. But I think that there is almost a curse on the family from the beginning because of that initial incestual relationship. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, we start getting into this theme about the cyclical nature of time and how all of the similarly named characters have similar traits they seem to make similar mistakes and i i that's not happening worldwide obviously you know we're we're talking about the banana company coming in and out there's not a lot of other evidence of other places around the world suffering similar fates that i think that that to me is a huge part of the story is that you know we learn about this curse and it culminates at the end of the story with though it is a simple thing the pigtail appearing on the last Arleano um and so i think that that's you know just it comes with the territory it's something that's inescapable once that starts they've already broken this this barrier that mm-hmm. they shouldn't have that that's just the fate of the family and that's just the way that it is i feel like incest is also an interesting way to um try to illustrate like the cyclical nature of this family like it's kind of like a literal representation of literal cycle (laughs) yeah of like of like of like um 
like I feel like the family is incestuous in more ways than one. I don't I don't know. I don't know how to explain it exactly, but <laughs> do you know what I mean like like it's a, it, it, the whole thing is about how it's like a cycle, how it's like a circle, how things are repeating themselves and like you're like here you are like marrying and like, you know, making babies with like your own family. You're repeating parts of your own family like closer than they should be. Yeah. And so I I don't know. I feel like it's an, like him using incest incest as a uh, just like a, a way to illustrate again like the the cyclical nature of the family yeah and it makes sense because like when you talk about how much the characters are similar to one another like there's not a lot of deviation from that gene pool am i right <laughs> <laughs> So right, <laughs> caught me off guard. <laughs> that, am I right? Caught me off guard. So I mean, like it is. I mean, it is definitely. You know, when you say it like that, it is. It is used as a tool for sure. Because There's no deviation from that gene pool in any sense of the word. And so, like, like it, it does help illustrate it in in like a physical form of the family because, you know you're directly implanting these character traits into your own family to continue the cycle. Mm-hmm. Like they're not trying to have other genes in the pool to help them like deviate away from these issues. Mm-hmm. Cause there are issues they, they keep talking about over and over, despite the fact that a lot of the Jose Arcadios and the Aurelianos have noble traits they also have significant problems and it just happens to be that those men stay in the family (laughs) so to speak cousins so i don't know i don't know about the danger but i just think that it's just bound to happen the way the way that the story is structured it just seems like that's just kind of part of the curse of the buendias Mm mm-hmm (laughs) <laughs> the curse of the <laughs> alternate title. Um, it's not as catchy. You're right. As you're right. You're right. Capitalism slash RR. Oh no, that's the, you mean the title of the book? <laughs> yeah, title. <laughs> <laughs> not the title of the episode. Capitalism RR bananas. bananas. <laughs> <laughs> what it's about? <laughs> um, do you guys have any, any final thoughts? I'm. I have one more question, but I was okay, I can talk. I don't know. I was just more my. Just we can we me. can tie this into my final question I'm just saying, too. Do you want me to? But like, I'm gonna ask a very just basic. Did you like it? <laughs> like, let's talk about if we liked it. Yeah, and how we liked it. I I do still really love this book, but it is not a book that I would read just casually for pleasure Mm -hmm. like this is the second time i've read it and both times it has been like a homework assignment (laughs) right like i mean our our book club podcast is very fun and i'm doing it (laughs) how um, convincing i'm i'm doing it willingly but we forced her into this one it's still like it still feels like homework yeah Yeah, oh it felt like homework to me every night when i had to read 20 pages and I don't like I think it I think it would be really hard for me to read this book 
without that motivation but yes. I enjoy it and I think that it's really valuable and I like thinking like I like learning about the context of it um and understanding why it is this way and why it's important and why Gabriel Garcia Marquez is a genius because I do th- like I think it's insane mm-hmm. that this book exists um I think it's amazing that anybody was able to write yeah I, and make sense of his own like of all of this like he made sense of it yeah and it's fascinating and it's uh, a different style of book than I would normally read mm-hmm um but that's my thought is that like I really love it and I feel like I will always tell people like oh that's a book that you really should read but also I wouldn't just like bring this to the beach <laughs> it's not a beach read oh no <laughs> so th- those I need are my, my computer and my notes yeah and my pencil yeah those are my thoughts I to start off really liked it um this is definitely my style of book um brian would take this to the beach i would take this to the beach and read this is a book that for the first time in a while like with a lot of the other books in our podcast like i took active notes um and looked up a lot along the way and i just kind of let this one flow um i feel like the world building which is kind of funny to say because it's not you know typically associated outside of fantasy novels or high fantasy novels but I felt like the world building in this novel was spectacular there was a lot of you could picture Macondo uh, and a lot of the descriptions of the family even the character building amongst them uh, you know it was very well done especially when you started to realize the cyclical nature of the characters because even though it spread quite uh, quite far within the family tree you know we're getting seven generations here because there's some order to the characters it did kind of bring it back into an easier to understand package and I, I've talked before on the podcast that endings of books can be you know huge for me uh, they can affect my enjoyment just from how it wraps up. I I loved this ending. I, I thought it was amazing to have the story of the family end with the last character reading the fate of the family and like he presumably dies when it's done, when he's done reading. Um and and just to kind of encapsulate, you know, these one hundred years of this family uh, so perfectly and kind of see where it was going the whole time because it, it did get confusing for a while. You know, there's a lot of characters and you don't realize those themes right away, but I think the way it ends really m- makes the book make more sense to me and I would like to read it again to start catching those parallels earlier. Um, but yeah, I thought it was it, it was a masterwork to me and, and I, I really, really enjoyed it. I'd like it to go on record that I told Brian he would love this book um, and that it was his kind of book. I don't think there's any question that this is Brian's kind of book. (laughs) I know, but I just, like, I told him for years, I feel like. For 100 years. There were 100 years of me telling Brian he needs to read Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Yeah, I liked it a lot. 
this book was a hundred years of solitude of me trying to read it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> not in a bad way. Um, this is not my, um, this is not the kind of book that I gravitate toward. Um, but I, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I think that it's again not a book that I would take to the beach. This is the kind of book I really enjoyed, like diving into and annotating and like getting several study guides and <laughs> like taking lots of notes and um and trying to figure out you know figuring out what's going on and um and parsing through it in that way. I I did really enjoy it. It's the kind of thing that like. I feel like I, I wanted I always wanted to do in like AP English but never actually had time to do you know mm. we, we were supposed to annotate but I never felt like I had time to really digest because we were reading so much and so I I mean this is the kind of like nerdy stuff that I like to that I like to do that I like to um, when I when I read a book that I'm not understanding or like that is kind of going over my head um, but it's also like for me kind of a lesson in like um, like I feel like the grit in me want like just wants to finish any and every book that I start regardless of whether or not I'm liking it. So I don't think that I would have stopped reading it if, you know, I wasn't reading it for this podcast. Um, but I do think that there were points where I was like, I don't remember what's going on. I'm just going to keep powering through because I need to remember what's happening and I need to familiarize myself with Makondo again. Yeah, and um, trying to go back, like, there's just so much. Well, and that's the thing. Like, you can just open the book. I feel like, cyclically speaking, like, you can just open the book at any point, And, like, the book could start at any on any page at mm-hmm. any time. It's and, so dense. The, the, yeah. book, the book feels a lot longer than it actually is because it's so dense and doesn't stick in a linear... There's so much happens yeah, this, in a page. This yeah. book didn't feel like so a 400-page book, and so, like, the exhaustion is definitely... Well, and, and even visually, like, <laughs> the, the blocks of text are long. Yeah, uh, you most don't have short of, paragraphs. Most of the book is... You know, there's one to two paragraphs on every page. And mm-hmm. that's it for long stretches of the book. And I kept calling the... Oh. I kept calling this... <laughs> um, Danny found Santa. Stamps in I her book. Santa stamps in my book. <laughs> um, <laughs> I... I um, what was I going to say? Gosh darn it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just... I think that, like, you could open the book at any point and... Um, I think that that speaks to the like cyclical nature of it and how um, you know you could start at any point and just go from there all the way back through the end to the beginning again to that point and it would kind of be the same like you're just you're just opening the book you're you're getting a glimpse of what it's like in Macondo and kind of the timelessness um, of the town as well um, and so I you know I I definitely enjoyed it it but i kept calling it every time i feel like every time i finished you know a chunk of pages i called it exhausting <laughs> i was exhausted i was like mentally drained and exhausted after reading it after trying to parse through what was happening remember the characters um you know remember who had which traits and when they switched and when they switched back uh you know like i i feel like that was just it was so much for me. We're looking at you, Segundo boys. <laughs> yeah, the Segundos and 
man. Um, but yeah, it was exhausting in a good way. It was like mentally, um, I don't know, stimulating and it was, it was good. I'm glad that I, it's one of those books that I'm glad to have read. I think I said that about Hitchhiker's Guide, but it's one of those books that I'm glad to have read. Yeah. I feel like it's a book that makes me want to read his other books Mm -hmm. that are shorter. And I know Brian has read one of the shorter ones. Um, 150 pages and i i think honestly i think that i would like those i don't want to say better because i think that this is such an important work but i feel like i would enjoy the reading process more of Mm -hmm. like still having his writing style and the magical realism and yeah everything I, i will say for the one that i read i believe it's called of love and other demons yeah um it after reading this, it reminds me of this book if we were focusing on, like, one storyline. Yeah, like one couple or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's got a similar vibe for sure, and um, the chunks of text are similar, but the story wraps up a lot faster, and it's a lot more succinct. And um, I, I think that it is worth checking out just because it's of how short it is. But, yeah, I, I definitely want to check out more of his work as well. Yeah, I, I definitely I want to read uh, Chronicle of a Death Foretold because that's the one he wrote right before he won the Nobel Prize. Um, and I don't know a lot about that book. Also unrelated, but on the back of my book, unlike your hardcovers over there, the last... <laughs> The last book that he wrote, according to this, it says his most recent his most recent book is the novel Memories of My Melancholy Whores. So I would like to read that. <laughs> oh man, I want to read that immediately. Out of curiosity. I want to know what that's about. I I like the phrase melancholy whores. I think that that fits really well. Um, but I mean, yeah. you or. I just, in general, I think that whores are melancholy. (laughs) (laughs) This has been Brian's book fashion. (laughs) That is where we'll end our show today. Uh, Yes, so uh, that's another book off the list. Um, Are you announcing what's next? Yeah. Or are we keeping that under wraps? Yeah, we're going to go ahead and do that. So we did talk about the... (laughs) I don't even... Uh, yeah, I don't remember which one we picked. So uh, we had talked about last episode uh, about what we're going to be doing kind of as a um, dividing couple episodes because our original plan um, was to get seven books read in this podcast. We may continue afterward, but that's just our minimum goal here. And so we've each led one I'm book. I'm fully now. planning on keeping this up for the rest of our, <laughs> our lives, our lives yeah. forever and ever. So, um, so we've done three uh, books, and each of us has led one. And then we're going to do one in the middle where we're going to bring in a fourth person. Um, our friend Andrew. Yeah, Andrew. Uh, and um, and by listen immediately. Name, that means <laughs> it's he's committed. committed to being on the podcast. We also mentioned that it was going to be a Kurt Vonnegut book, and so. Uh, we're going to start reading Bluebeard. Okay. Um, I couldn't remember if it was Galapagos or Bluebeard. Yeah, we're going to start reading Bluebeard. We're going to text Andrew um, soon. And we'll be back with that 
with those episodes soon as well. So we hope you stick with it. And then uh, once we get to the end of those episodes, we'll have a new batch of three books uh, that each of us will be leading and see where it goes from there. But yeah, this has been our episode or our two episodes on 100 Years of Solitude. Bye. That's it. We're just leaving right there. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.